Hello everyone and welcome to this week's episode of Success in Finance. Joining me today is Daniel Pembroke. Daniel joined McFarlane straight out of school and transitioned into a credit controller role as the concept of asking clients to pay money that they owed you developed. Um, after eight years at McFarlane's, Daniel went on to join Insenco uh, via a brief stint as credit controller at HFW. Uh, he went on to spend almost 20 years at Insenco, progressing through the revenue management and into a BD and pricing role. Uh, he later became head of pricing, at which point he was presented with the opportunity to join Simmons and Simmons, and subsequently Norton Road Fulbright, where he spent the last three and a half years. I hope you enjoy the episode, and don't forget to subscribe, share, and comment. Uh, you can also watch this interview as well as other recent interviews on my YouTube channel. Thanks. Hi Daniel, thanks for joining me on Success in Finance today. How are you? Uh, I'm I'm good, Danny. Um, thanks thanks for the invite. Um, I hope uh, hope you're well too. Yeah, really good. Um, a pleasure to have you. Um, so without further ado, do you want to uh, kick starters with a quick summary, and uh, and then we can deep dive into your career. Um, a quick summary. Well, <laughs> as you and I have been discussing, I've been um, I've been in, in working in, in the legal industry and in, in sort of the finance um, side of things for the last thirty years. Um, I jumped uh, straight out of school into into my first job um, with um, a firm called McFarlands, which are a um, high quality law firm in Chancery Lane. Um, it wasn't really by design. It was a bit of luck, really. Um, uh, left school and, and my auntie was working for a recruitment agency in, in the city and sent me for three interviews. And, and I pretty much took the one that, that paid the most, um, which was um, uh, back in the day was a whopping figure of six and a half thousand pounds um, a year, not a month. Um, and that was a, a real um, um, a fantastic opportunity, actually, to, to join them as, a, as an accounts junior um, in what was um, a, a kind of an apprentice role. Um, there's not there's not so many of them about right now, um, but I was working very closely and I was very fortunate to work very closely with the FD um, in, in a time when um, the accountancy side of things was changing. Um, computers had just come in. Um, I was lucky enough to have one of the first IBM computers, not, not too many of them around right now, um, and was able to kind of get ahead of the game from a technology perspective. Um, it was also the time when spreadsheets came in. And uh, being the kind of the youngster in the team, I was sort of hands on, this is how we're going to get these to work. Um, and you know, I was very lucky to benefit from um, the experience of, of those around me, qualified accountants who were able to um, train me up on the accountancy side of things, you know, understand balance sheets, PL, that sort of stuff. Um, but also, you know, look at the, the more fun type stuff, the kind of the commercial um, accounting, as it were. Um, so yeah, McFarland's was great. It was, it was, it was there actually where I had my first kind of change of change of role when um, it was after a pretty hefty recession and, and law firms had just started. Uh, realizing that cash was probably a bit more important than they, they've given it credit for in, in the past. And, and there was this newfangled thing, which was called credit control. Um, it, it seems ridiculous now that um, uh, some businesses back in the day didn't really have to worry too much about collecting their money. But, but now this um, new approach of asking their clients to pay as, as well as just expecting it is, um, is, where, is where I got my first kind of change in, in career. And, and um, uh, it was a bit old-fashioned to start with, a lot of letters being um, dictated and, and sent out the door, and then slowly the kind of the processes catch up. And um, it was my first opportunity to actually start speaking with clients um, and, and having conversations around. Uh, you know, sometimes they had issues. You know, it was, it was as I said, it was coming out of recession. And some people weren't always in a position to pay. Um, and being a private client firm as well as a commercial firm, sometimes you were talking to individuals and uh, sometimes you're talking to, to businesses. Um, and I've been there about eight years when I was got a phone call from an agent saying, would I be interested in a, in a credit control job at a, another law firm in another industry, in another sector? 
and that was Holman, Fennick and Willen. Um, that was a change of scene, and, and it was it was quite interesting that when I I landed there, it's very nice people around me, but it was pretty quick to see that um, to identify that that partnerships law firms have different cultures. And it was um, having come from a very warm place like McFarland's where they um, treated everyone as an equal and they 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 love to work hard but also play hard. It was it was similar at Home and Fenwick Willem, but just with a slight slight tilt as it were. Um, and you kind of pick that up and it's quite interesting to see. But that's why I was quite happy when the FD uh, the old FD from, from McFarland's had moved to Ince in the interim and then gave me a call and said, you want to come across here? Um, and I figured, um, not for the first time in my career, that a quick jump is probably better than a prolonged prolonged stay. Um, and this is where I spent the majority of my 30 years. So I spent 19 years at Ince & Co um, with, uh, I suppose, three different roles. Um, I came in looking at credit control um, and that um, um, anyone who, who specialises in a particular area and, and they start looking at the process of, of, I mean, in this instance, credit control, you, you quickly realise that some of your impediment to getting paid is actually a bit earlier in the process. And then you start looking at the billing process. You start looking at problems like why isn't this being addressed to the right person? Um, there's a whole lot of regulation from a tax perspective. Um, um, that you have to get right um, and then you you kind of look at that too and then if, once you started looking at that you then realize actually it was time recording that was the problem um, and I think uh, you were in practice Danny you know that time recording isn't isn't always uh, the first thing you want to do um, that's the same in legal it wasn't the highlight of the job that's for sure. <laughs> but uh, yeah so you've got to get people into good practice you've got to start looking at behaviors um, that was a, a how we actually managed to pull all that together in something called, you know, working capital management. Um, and again, that was a um, kind of a new approach for law firms, looking at that operational aspect of um, uh, order to cash. Um, and, and there are so many things you can improve really quite quickly um, once you look into the process and once you look at that design piece. Um, and all of this, you know, over a, a period where technology is starting to come into law firms and really starting to help not just the practice management systems, these behemoths of data um, with, you know, millions of lines of, um, of time entry and, and on the other side, the client account management, etc. Um, and some of these bolt-on technologies actually, you know, really did make a difference. Um, and some of my big successes were actually there at INTS where we managed to really get a handle on the working capital and, and reduce the lockup days, the amount of time it takes to, to from when you do your work to actually getting paid. Um, very satisfying time, actually, um, um, and that, that part of um, my career. Um, Before we go any further, Dan, can I just rewind um, a couple of questions on uh the earlier stages pre-ints because I, I think we'll, we'll probably spend a lot of time talking about ints um so because obviously you went straight out of school um into into mcfarland i know it wasn't um by design as you said but was there a reason why you wanted to go straight into work or, or was it just that the path you fell into or um yeah i mean I've, I've never really been that academic um i mean uh, at school, I've, you know, I've got a bunch of GCSEs that I pretty much coasted through. I didn't do so well at A-levels. Um, you can take your time and some of my friends would take the time and take an extra year and, and reset um, A-levels and then go to university. But it was never a massive burning ambition of mine to go to university. Um, it, it struck me that those sort of three or four years where um, future graduates are, are kind of honing their skills and, 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 and taking exams, et cetera, I was then out gaining experience. Um, the disadvantage, of course, is it, it kind of cuts out the opportunity to um, go straight into a grad scheme or qualify as a, a solicitor or an accountant or any other profession like that where you, you have to go through quite structured. Um, but it doesn't rule it out completely because, of course, you can take um, uh, qualifications like ACCA. You could do 
a SEMA, you could do sort of on-the-job learning and, and evening qualifications. So my options were still open, I kind of felt. Yeah, no, I mean, for me, the, the benefit of going to university was probably, I don't know if I'd have been able to hack work at 18. Um, so that three years sort of let me do a bit more growing up. But having gone into into practice, as you say, because um, they do do school leaver programmes now. I don't know if they did back then, but some of the school leavers are, are the best people because they've, they've decided they want to go straight into work. They They haven't I don't know, messed around at uni for a few years. They're just very focused and driven. And they're some of the best people that I worked with um, in practice. And and like you say, you can, there are still other routes that you have to go down. And I think by the time your counterparts come out of uni for three, four years down the line, you're quite cemented in what you're doing. You're on the, on track. And yeah, you, you, even things like going into your first job, at 21 you, you don't know how to use i know that these things might not have been around then but like certain technologies and but you you've been there four years and you know what you're doing so now i was just interested in that and then um yeah the other thing was just again interested in that transition into technology were you seen as sort of the young techie guy <laughs> that, that knew how to use these computers and that sort of thing Completely, yeah. I mean, my dad had a business, um, and um, so when I was a teenager, I was helping him do his. Well, I was doing the payroll on an Amstrad computer. So I, I you know, I, I was given. Uh, I was lucky enough to to have a go with technology as soon as it came out, and um, that does put you ahead of the game, I think. And it's one of the themes that I would always come back to. You know, over thirty years, technology has played a massive role in changing what we're doing. Um, lawyers for instance would have not had a computer on their desk 30 years ago and, and they would just dictate and that would either be with a secretary in the room or with their dictaphone um, and it takes time to evolve um, the advent of email for instance and I remember when email came into McFarland's they only gave it to the lawyers to start with and uh, then they quickly realized actually it was probably the secretaries who were going to be sending the messages yeah. um, and then they kind of opened it up um, but yeah, I, I'm always fascinated by that change. Um, but also just going back a step to, to the point about, you know, whether to go to university or whether to go straight into work, um, I really didn't have a clue about what I wanted to do. And I, and I think that's why it was really good for me to go into an environment where there was uh, so much to learn, but there were people that were so generous with their time and, and wanting to teach me. Um, and that, that's something that I've um, been fortunate enough to benefit from the experience of so many different people, not, not just on, you know, how to um, how to operate, but also on, you know, on a technical level. Um, I remember being taught how to write a letter. I mean, that's not something they teach you at school. Um, you know, you go through it, business writing. And, and then I found out I was actually pretty good at it. It wasn't something I'd ever been interested in, but it's now something that I delight in. Yeah, I love writing copy for for sort of um, pricing pitches, um, trying to really get a, a used communication written the written word to actually um, achieve what you're trying to do. Yeah. Um, now the other thing as well that that we touched upon on on that earlier part of your career was the transition into credit control and asking clients to to pay you the money that they owe you. Um, I'm very interested in how that as an art changed from, as you said, it was sending a letter um, to presumably then picking up the phone and I don't know, from maybe demanding to working together to, to work something out. Um, yeah, did you did you find that that was a bit of a um, bit experimental for you going into that role? Uh, very much so. Um, there weren't a lot of people to learn from. Um, there is an industry body called the Institute of Credit Management, which um, was quite useful. Um, there was also the, the, the Butterworth's um, Guide to Credit Management, which was a loose leaf um, publication that uh, they would send you an update every uh, few months and you'd go through and replace the pages. Um, it, it, it's absolutely brilliant. Uh, <laughs> looking back on it now, when we have the internet and how quickly we can find the information we need. Um, but the sources back then were limited um we um had to hone 
and revised the process as we went through. Um, it taught me a lot about uh, having processes that are that, that are fit for purpose for, for instance, um, individual clients as opposed to businesses, yeah. or um, where the debt might have been around a dispute, or it might be around um, a, a commercial transaction. And in, in different pieces of work, of course, you've got different um, points at which the cash might materialize. In a dispute, you may not get your money until you've been successful. Um, and then in a transaction, you may not, money might not materialize until the deal has been done and the finance trickles through. So, as well as learning a lot about um, credit control, um, it was also learning a huge amount around um, the type of law that was being practiced and the services that were being provided. I don't know if, uh, if it's the same in, in, in the big accountants, um, but if you ask any lawyer if they're busy, they will say yes, whether they are or not. Um, but then if you ask them what are they busy on, um, they will probably tell you and they'll probably spend a good half an hour explaining why. And, and so it's a, a really good um, ability to have is to ask the right questions. So you're very good at Danny. You know, you, you've just got to ask those questions and before you know it, you get a massive or a really good comprehensive um, explanation and you start to build up your, your bank of knowledge um, for, for that uh, industry. Yeah, yeah. And, and I can imagine uh, you sort of alluded to it there, but the empathy side of things and just the willingness to ask a question, then listen to the response would have gone very far um, and, and well, does go very far to this day, I imagine. Is that fair to say? Yeah, and this is free advice. This is, I'm, you know, I was getting advice and education from some of the biggest and best lawyers in, in the country or, or the world or whatever it is. These are right at the top of their game. Um, and, you know, time is money in that industry, or certainly that's how it always used to, used to be um, um, expressed. Um, and so if anyone giving up their time for me like that it was just an absolute bonus. Um, yeah. And then, and then as you know, when, once you are, um, um, once you're given that knowledge, you then start to start talking in the same language as those people. Uh, and that, that, that lends the credibility that you need in order to, you know, bring your ideas to the table, um, to start challenging the status quo, um, and, and making improvements. Yeah, no, absolutely. And, and another th question that I had as well and, and then we can jump back into ins but uh, I might be getting a bit too much down a rabbit hole but I just like to to go with the things that interest me you mentioned the timesheets um were, were there instances where uh, you'd be speaking to clients chasing cash where it, it shouldn't really be due because people haven't done timesheets correctly or the work they've said they've done isn't what the clients perceive to have been done. And I can imagine that could have caused, like when, when these things started to come in, um, quite a lot of confusion and contention maybe. Yeah, I mean, uh, disputes would arise in relation to any debt um, on a number of different angles. Um, some might be that they weren't happy with the outcome, um, but then you have to go back and say, well, hang on a second, we were selling you a service, we weren't selling you an outcome. Um, unless you were actually selling an outcome and then they might be quite right. And um, you've got to look at whatever the, the challenge might be. Um, and from my perspective, um, my role was there to facilitate a, a decent um, resolution um, because the last thing you want to do is to get into a, a, a genuine conflict where you're, you're having to go to court, which did happen. Um, yeah. and, You'd have some people that just were um, belligerent, just didn't want to pay. Yeah, that's, uh, that's a genuine business uh, tactic. Uh, you, I think it was a GE that said the money is better off in our account than it is in yours. You're just going to hold on to it for a while. Um, you just need to wait a little bit longer. But then, yeah, sometimes there were mistakes, and you'd go and unpick them, and and you'd you'd remedy them, and then you'd you'd come to a decent decent outcome. Is is the um, is the goal? Yeah, great. Um, yeah, so back to INS then. I think where where we got to was you were you were really honing that that revenue management piece and maybe extending beyond purely the credit control side of things now. But uh, yeah, you you tell me a bit more about 
what you were doing. So you were in that role for, for quite some time. Right? Yeah, I mean, this was um, kind of my first opportunity to kind of um, look outside of what I was doing operationally. Um, and start to look at the various different components that fit into that that jigsaw, and then if you can wrap up the right components, then you can you can really look at the process and look at the opportunities uh, for synergies. Um, at the same time as you're sort of um, interfacing with all the people you need to talk to, uh, you've got to make sure that um, the job's still being done, but you can um, um, improve it. If you look at it holistically um, and, and that was a, a fantastic thing and, and i think once we had you know made considerable improvements in the overall outcome i.e having freed up a load of working capital you know reduce that liability on the balance sheet um then i was kind of I and mean, this is when i started um i suppose feeling like i'd almost finished it that yeah. that was done um yeah. which I was quite lucky at that point because you know my options then were being just to do the same thing in a bigger firm yeah or, or to take it to a different industry um but i was very lucky because in in um, decided to it was you know the 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 market they operated in was was tough they operated in the the global shipping industry and the insurance industries um the insurance industry becoming more commoditized meant there was a lot of pressure on on, on price uh, back then price was pretty much always the hourly rate and so it was a question of just keeping a lid on it pushing it down very difficult to put prices up yeah um and and in um sort of the advice of a of a consultant a pricing consultant um uh, who had operated as a um he was a managing partner as a as a lawyer in a, in a firm in new zealand um, and then decided to step into this kind of pricing commercial space um, in the UK. Um, and he came in and really opened my eyes to the, um, uh, I suppose, the behavioural economic side of, of the commercials of, of any deal. Um, and I should add, actually, that, that when he did come along and he did his original workshops and then he was on hand uh, to start setting up the pricing infrastructure, I was actually asked to kind of babysit him during that process. Um, and again, not for the first time, I was incredibly lucky because I then had access to someone who, who really knew his stuff um, and was able to witness how this operates in practice. Um, I then started um, um, working on pricing opportunities myself um, at, at, um, at after a while, I think, I, I can't remember exactly how long, maybe a year or so, this, this consultant then stepped away. I was then um, thinking, well, okay, this is the area that I want to, to operate in. Um, and I benefited from um, a chap called Mark Clark. I hope he doesn't mind me mentioning his name. He was um, uh, operates as a consultant, but I think at the time he was a PwC uh, and then came to, to work for, for in permanently in the change management program. And he gave me a, a really decent piece of advice when I um, said that I wanted to move into this pricing space. He said, consider when you when you look at what you're doing in your career, consider it or break it down into, into projects or assignments and the work that you were doing in working capital. And it did take you quite a long time. That's done. That's complete. You've handed that over to, to the next person or team or whatever is going to deal with it. And you should look at your, your future now in terms of pricing um, as the next phase, as it were. And I think that really helped me get my head around um, the change process. Yeah. And, and I was able to, and as supported by a, a few, uh, some people in the business, draw up a plan, um, take it to the senior partner, um, uh, to to move into a pricing and BD role uh, within the BD uh, and marketing team, so moving out of finance at that point into into BD and marketing, um, which is an interesting point really because um, pricing sits in different functions in different businesses. It's um, in itself pricing is just one lever of the one of the drivers for profitability. 
and, and functions within within businesses are not always set up just to support that one that one driver. Uh, and so pricing has, I suppose, struggled to find um, a home. Um, albeit more usually, it will sit in finance. Um, and, and taking it to BD at that point was just showing them that it wasn't um, working capital management because it had my face on it. It was actually something different. Yeah. Um, so, that, yeah, that was a very interesting time. Yeah. And, and in terms of so that transition into um, into the the pricing space, I mean, lots of law firms are still building out their pricing functions now. So what was the support network like for you then? I know you initially had the that managing partner that you mentioned that you learned from for a year or so. But outside of that, was it pretty much finding your own way or were there other professionals that you could sort of soundboard with so there was a few um opportunities started to arise from a networking perspective um a lot of it actually is through um software companies who are trying to sell their thing their tool that deals with pricing and uh, legal project management, the delivery side of things, the kind of the budget to actual type reporting. And through a number of these sort of events, and there's, there's, there wasn't a huge amount, but I was able to uh, meet uh, other people in, in the industry. Um, and you're right, lots of firms are still trying to build it out. Um, some firms have, have accountants who are doing uh, pricing, um, from a sort of an FP&A perspective and, and others had actually gone out of uh, the industry and, and recruited pricing people into it. Uh, some people from um, uh, the airline business um, or telecoms, um, you know, all industries have pricing people and, and, and some are, I suppose, um, more suited to, to, to professional services than, than others. Um, but very eye-opening and, and, and literally at every turn you learn something new. Um, yeah, very not a fun. Yeah, no, good stuff. And j just on that point, what what industries do transition best into the legal space from what you've seen? Well, one of one of the keys to um, uh, pricing is that you know you are actually dealing with even if it is a business you're selling to or pitching to, you're dealing with individuals, and and this is. It tends to be where it's outside of a procurement-driven process, where it's numbers-based and, and scorecarded, et cetera, where it's more opportunistic. You, you know, you've got to use pricing psychology to actually uh, get that individual to buy into to what you're trying to sell them. And one of the biggest ways to do that is choice. Um, if you provide someone with choice, they're really likely uh, to take ownership of their choice once they've made it. Um, but one of the tricks is that you don't always know what they're going to be interested in. And so the power of three comes into play. You might have heard of it as referred to as Goldilocks pricing, um, where sort of Goldilocks goes in and, and there's three bowls of porridge in the three bears house. And one is too cold, one is too hot, and one is just right. But, but you don't really know what Goldilocks is going to go for first. Yeah. So you try and differentiate your services and you attach different price points. And that's something that's straight out of retail. That's that's B two C stuff. And so, in terms of industries, I mentioned airlines. You can, you can, uh, if you look at Ryanair and EasyJet, their pricing. You know, they can sell you a seat for for twenty quid, but it'll cost you a hundred because of everything else that's kind of bolted onto it. Um, you know, if you want it reserved, if you want to uh, have some locker space, if you know, if you want some food, whatever it might be, they'll differentiate. Um, and so, yeah, so I think people who have had experience of B2C type pricing are often very um, um, adept in, in, in this environment. Cool. Um, so so then you, you sort of transitioned into head of pricing. I imagine that was you sort of spent that year and a half proving that, that you could do it and you were good at it, got the recognition. And is that when other firms started to think, oh, who's this Dan Pembroke? He, he looks decent um, and came knocking. Uh, yeah, pretty much. I mean, you know, I was doing, as I mentioned, I was doing a bit of business development as well. And that was really eye opening. Yeah. Um, when you're working in business development in a, in a law firm, you are 
really close to the coalface because um, you know partners are relatively independent when it comes to selling their services, um, and it, it really matters to them. So you've got to get that right, and that is the priority. And, and um, from from looking from working in, in revenue, sort of working capital management, where the deadlines are your own, to working with in sales, you're then working to the client's deadlines, and 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 that can actually generate conflicts and pressure, etc. And that didn't fit quite so well with trying to do pricing at the same time, um, and albeit a very very good um, education, a good experience, and, and taught me a huge amount around, around the sales piece, um, I, I wanted to focus on, on pricing. And, and yes, um, yeah, you're a recruiter, Danny, what, what do you look for when you're, you know, you look for titles or, or you know, people in, in particular industries? Uh, yeah, and that, that's what happened. And that's when I got a call to um, have a chat with the people at Simmons & Simmons. Cool. And what appealed about Simmons and Simmons initially, or was it just the tenure at Innocent Care? You were ready for a change? Yeah. Uh, yeah, exactly that. I've been there a long time, um, and you know, I'm quite a quite a loyal person. Um, I I knew I knew a lot of people at Ince. Um, grown up with a lot of them. You know, there 19 years. Um, I got married in that time. Had children at that time. Um, had some very good friends there. Um, but you know, one thing about having a, a, a young family is, is some people become a bit more risk adverse, as I did, um, because you want to provide um, for your family, yeah. um, and that kind of cut me off a bit in terms of looking career-wise. So, so when this came along, Simmons and Simmons is a great brand. Um, you know, it's it's very well respected, um, and uh, it was a jump up in terms of. Um, uh, access to a different type of work that they're doing, a uh, the more finance, banking, etc. Um, and um, I was there a short period of time, and I, you know, I, I really would have stayed. It's a lovely place. I got to work with a chap called Eddie, Eddie Bowman, who was the new BD director there, who was starting an initiative to look at all of their key client relationships, and, and I was heavily involved in that, um, which was um, yeah, really good fun. Um, and, and then I, I had a, another call. Um, this is a lot of telephone calls, yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, the, the yeah, Norman Rice Fulbright is, is a, a massive global firm. And um, I walked into the shoes of um, a chap who had been there um, a while, a chap called Adrian Avanzato, who set up the, the pricing function there. Adrian's well known in, in the legal pricing community. Yeah. Um, and he had set up a team there and a function with governance and uh, processes in place, um, backed up by de uh, decent data. Um, but I joined there at a time when Norman Rose Fulbright had moved over to, uh, moved its um, practice management system over to SAP. Yeah. And when, when they do that, they have to turn the, the kind of the, the lights off for a bit and you get data darkness. And so that was, uh, more of a recreation at that time, recreating the team and recreating the processes. Um, and, you know, getting access to some very complex, large pieces of work, um, servicing the pricing requirements on some very big panel opportunities as well. Um, at the same time, of course, as focusing on, on the lawyer teams in their different, different areas. Um, yeah, it really was, uh, you know, that a massive opportunity to learn. Um, again, going back to that point about uh, talking to the lawyers, trying to understand what they do, but also operating in an environment where technology was being harnessed massively and, and still is. And, and the biggest law firms out there are really taking advantage of um, a, a people processing technology approach that has been in industry for forever, as it were, um, and applying it to legal services. And then you can you can really, um, uh, you know, you can build some pretty decent models that are going to be able to very accurately tell you what this is going to cost, but, but also what you might then realise in terms of a fee at the end of the day. Um, uh, yeah, 
Yeah. Cool. Um, yeah, I mean, what, what what were the key things that that you did learn at NRF then that that maybe you didn't pick up at Inns or wouldn't have had the opportunity to? I know you mentioned or or the stuff around the new sort of pricing systems. Um, was there anything specific? Um, yeah, I mean, the, what they did do was they managed to pull a lot of people who are working in that people process and technology space together. So, so where we had uh, traditional divisions in a uh, in the business services side of a law firm, and I suspect of the big accountants too, um, you'll have um, you know a finance department which will start up because you needed someone to prepare the accounts and, and file the accounts, and, and, and then maybe look at tax, and then maybe looking at things like billing and, and collections and that sort of stuff, and and that's sort of all here. Uh, and then you've got sort of, uh, you know, law firms would have said, I think we need someone to organise an event, so let's get a marketing team. And then then they start looking at BD and then they build it. And it but it goes into these pillars. Um, and what, what um, um, NRF did was they actually kind of sliced it. So all of those which are facing those components from those divisions, which, which are sort of um, client-facing, as it were, meeting client needs, um, designing um, solutions for the clients, etc., wrapping it all up in a commercial piece that was taken out and put into a sort of a sub-brand called Transform NRF Transform. Uh, so it could really focus on on, on um, areas of innovation that were going to drive um, efficiencies for clients, yeah. um, uh, um, but also maximise um, returns because there's no point in continuing to to drive efficiencies if you're not going to benefit from it too um i mean in 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 the legal industry what we have seen is is um globalization and the internet have made it a lot easier for clients to be more informed um you know that's led to with, with a succession of um economic change on a macro level has has led to margins coming down in, in the legal industry um there are other businesses out there other consultancies are able to challenge for work as well so you've got to get better at it and you've got to look at it in a different way um, and i think i think that's where where nrf had some real success um and something that i really benefited from cool um well look before we start to wrap up just a few uh, a few additional questions so um i mean we've touched on it to an extent but what what are the key things in the legal space that have changed um during your time in that space i mean the biggest one for me was actually email yeah so where you know where a lawyer would um receive a letter from from the other side on, on a dispute or whatever it might be They'll read the letter, they'll have a cup of coffee, they'll go for lunch, they will think about it, they will come back and they will um, dictate their initial message, the, the, the secretary will draft it or a typewriter and then bring it back in and then they'll redraft it and then it gets done again and then it gets sent out that night and then a couple of days later the other side get the, the response. And, and that could be a strategic tool, actually using time to your to your benefit as well. Yeah. And then and then watching client, uh, watching partners in the new world, you know, the next generation of partners who've only known email, an email comes in from the client, they respond immediately with their advice. That's it. It's yeah. gone. Bang, bang, bang. And it, it, there are questions always asked around how you can. Um, um, take commercial advantage from tech, the application of technology. No one considered back then whether email should be charged for. They were charging for letters, but they wouldn't charge for email. No one really understood how that was going to, how it's going to happen. Yeah. And so you had a lot of people just working harder, just doing more things and focusing, um, well, not, I suppose, not really focusing as much on the value, on the, on the outcomes of work. I was taught a great lesson um, by a chap called Paul Arditti, who sadly passed away, but he was a, a, um, a disputes, um, he was a litigator in the insurance market, and he had this multi-million pound case that was really important for the industry, and, and he was saying to me, 
you know, the time recording thing is a waste of time, blah, 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 because we've spent five years on this dispute. And the only value, the only real value I added was 20 minutes in a shower one morning when I came up with the strategy. And that was it. You know, he kind of, he got it right. You know, what are we selling? Are we selling outcomes? Are we selling, selling time? Are we selling pieces of paper? Interesting. On that point, though, would it be commercially viable to only charge a client for his 20 minutes in the shower? Well, or is it just the total value of that five years worth of work that's come down to that 20 minutes? Or is that the point? Well, the point is that the 20 minutes is worth five million pounds. Uh, the, yeah. the, 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 the time you spent on it, you can use any calculation you like. And, and yes, there are costs to pay along that line, but it, it's really the whole value is in that that moment. Uh, and that's what you've got to try and, you know, you've got to have better conversations with your clients to understand what it is that they think is most valuable. Yeah. And, and people will generally put a price on it. And yeah. once they put a price on it, they're happy, happy to pay it. Okay. So with that in mind, is there a movement away from the, the time side of things now? Or is that slowly there's a lot of talk about it uh, but the um, when procurement are involved um they they need to be able to count something and um hourly rates are, are something that they can it's tangible they can see it they can compare or at least think they can compare um apples with apples although quite frequently it's it's not um but what we are seeing is is um Certainly, this side of the Atlantic, less so in the States, um, clients challenging law firms to come up with something that really does demonstrate the value. I, I don't want to sit there with, with you just um, spending hours and hours on something when that's not really what I wanted. I, I actually wanted an outcome. Yeah. Um, and, and, you know, if we can agree on the value of the outcome, then we don't have to worry about how much time you spend on it. Then that's kind of down to you. Yeah. Um, that's not to say that hourly rates is wrong, because, you know, that may be really appropriate. There may be some advisory stuff where it is, you know, absolutely bang on. But, but likewise, you, you, you probably should be attaching um, or, or having that conversation with your client that says, you know, what, what is really important to you here? Is it about um, cost certainty? You know, is there a budget we've got to work to? Is it about that communication piece? So maybe project legal project management is the really important thing for you here, or is it solely about um, um, dismissing a piece of uh, litigation against you? Or maybe there's a time um, timeline that you have to achieve that by. And all of these things you can actually write down. You know, this is the important stuff. Why don't we try and um, uh, commercialize that? And, and then theoretically, you, you're, you're focusing on the right thing. Um, and you don't have people spending hours and hours and hours reading time entries. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, and then another question, I mean, uh, I guess to an extent it's quite obvious, but it'd be good to get your, your specific answer. How, how and why has pricing started to become more prominent in the legal space? I think, well, that goes again to the point of, um, you know, back in the day, cash becoming important when the, the kind of the macroeconomic climate changed. Uh, so so they, they, they looked to credit control and then, um, you know, price becoming important because it hadn't really been addressed. So what was in place for, you know, 100 years uh, as a mechanism wasn't, you know, isn't entirely fit for purpose. So let's have a focus on, you know, that key lever you know if you're looking at profitability you've got you know your price minus your cost times volume so sales is being focused on so um, you've got bd teams you've got client uh, relationship programs uh, there's a whole piece in law firms with you know quite a big resource requirement getting that right and then we talked about people process and technology from a cost perspective uh, and again, that can actually, you know, from a delivery perspective, that's not just your employing your workforce, but it, you know, it might be questions around um, where your workforce is. You know, there are um, other locations that are a bit cheaper, um, or on a micro level, when you're looking at the opportunity, how are we going to do this as as efficient as possible? 
And both of those areas actually take demand quite a lot of resource, whereas pricing is a strategic thing. Um, yeah. So once you get your strategy right, then you can design processes and, and operations around that, probably with a piece of governance attached to it, uh, to then um, uh, ensure you are operating um, effectively. Um, in, in the past, you know, without any governance in place or without any attention to pricing, you'll have um, lawyers in the same firm, you know, pricing something completely different and maybe even competing with, with each other accidentally. So, you know, a bit, bit of discipline around it, um, a bit of um, uh, attention to whether it's fit for purpose, you know, what are we doing? Is this right what we're doing? Should, should lead to, to, to better outcomes. Yeah, that's, that's interesting. Um, and then on to you personally and Daniel, ad, advice that you would give for aspiring pricing professionals? Um, we've talked about network already, but I think yeah. it's really important to develop your network. And I think that goes for kind of um, um, any industry. And, and don't just focus on um, those people that you think are going to immediately assist you. Yeah. There will be people who um, have deep knowledge in other parts of business, other sectors um, that, that will um, help you on the periphery. Um, but you also never know where you're going to be in the future. And so you've got to really um, um, have your eyes open. Uh, and be willing to have conversations and be proactive about it. Can be difficult, but um, yeah, definitely improve um, uh, your network. And then the other point about pricing specifically is that it, it's uh, <laughs> I'm going to sound pretentious here, but it is an art. It, yeah. it's, it sits on a bed of science, but the um, behavioural economics component is is the art component, and understanding that is just as important as understanding um, you know, how to build a model. Although if you're like me, you quite enjoy doing that as well. Yeah. yeah. Um, cool. And then, and then finally, the three key attributes that have enabled you the success you've had, Daniel. Be open to opportunities. Uh, that's, that's really important. Um, you know, we, we work for... Um, a long time, you know, yeah. before we get to retire. Don't, um, and this is something I'm considering now, don't believe you have to have one career. Um, it, it could evolve, it could change, there may be complete changes. Um, there is a shift for some people now to have portfolio careers, sort of looking at uh, operating in different sectors at the same time. Um, doing smaller chunks of work, considering that point again around um, assignments, you know, viewing your, your, your career as a bunch of different assignments is really important. Um, yeah, so keep an eye open for opportunities. I've heard some of your previous um, guests uh, talk about this as well, but I think it's really important, which is to work on your resilience. Yeah. Um, you know, we can't control the actions of everyone else around us. So we have to be able to write, write those interactions when they're not quite so good. But just as important is recognize that we are not going to succeed at everything we do. We may, um, we may cock up occasionally, if I could say that. We may have, um, you know, some stuff that we're not that proud of. We need to work through those because we can't, you know, we're not always going to be right up here. Sometimes you might miss that by a bit um, and we have to forgive ourselves for that and, and know what we can achieve. And then the last one for me is to treat everyone as an equal. Um, it's uh, pretty simple, but you know, I've had a, I've benefited from um, the experience of a, a large number of people, you know, over, over my kind of my 30 years in law. And I think there are some very generous people out there and it's really important to be generous back to them as well um, for, for a whole host of different reasons. But one is just being a good human being. Yeah. No, there's three really good ones, uh, Daniel. Um, 
really like them. Um, yeah, couldn't couldn't agree more about being open to opportunities. Resilience is something everyone needs at some point. Um, it just is you're not going to sail through like you say 50 years of your career without any problems and um treating everyone equally love that um you just you just scared me i've got another 20 years left is that what you're saying <laughs> yeah I, as i was doing the math in my head i was like maybe i've overcut that but uh <laughs> you, you did start young to be fair daniel um, <laughs> but yeah no it's been great to have you R- really enjoyed the conversation so so thanks very much well thanks for having me danny absolute pleasure Cheers. Cheers, thanks. So that was Daniel Pembroke. Uh, I hope you enjoyed listening to Daniel's story. Uh, It was interesting to hear that the biggest change that he's seen in the legal space over his uh, time in that space was email. Um, He noted that it used to be used as a strategic tool uh, to delay responses, but uh, nowadays everything is instant. Um, Other key themes that we touched upon was, uh, don't believe that you have to have one career. View each part of your career as a separate assignment. Uh, He also said that he sees pricing as an art and um, mentioned again the the theme of networking and its importance. The three key attributes that Daniel mentioned in achieving the success that he's had to date were one, be open to opportunities and that sort of links back to the uh, point about don't believing you have to have one career. Um, Resilience as well. Uh, there'll always be points where you need to grit and, uh, and get on with things and uh, not let outward uh, experiences affect you. And three, treat everyone equally. As always, don't forget to subscribe, share and comment. You can also watch recent interviews on my YouTube channel as well as this one. Thanks.